Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow and wherever you are in the world, well, it's great to have you with us. And today, as in every episode, I'm joined by two fabulous writers who will be going head to head in a war of the words a little later on. My first guest presents The Breakfast Show on Times Radio, a station he helped launch in 2020. He's been a regular presenter on Radio 4's Front Row and was the editor and publisher of The Times Literary Supplement. At one time or another, he's written for almost every newspaper in Britain and one or two in America as well. And he's here to tell us about his debut novel, Death Under a Little Sky. It's Stig Abel. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. And it's lovely to see you. Uh, not in person this time, but that's all right. We'll fix that over the summer, I think, at a literary festival or two. I'm sure there'll be one or two around the place. <laughs> and my second guest is a screenwriter and author of the best-selling Inspector Tom Reynolds series and several number one best-selling standalone novels as well. Her first novel, With Our Blessing, was one of seven books shortlisted in the Richard and Judy Search for a Bestseller competition, and her first psychological thriller, The Confession, was a number one bestseller in Ireland. Here to tell us about her brand new thriller, Don't Look Back, all the way from Dublin, it's Joe Spain. Hello. Hi. Nice to be on with you guys. It's wonderful to see you. And um, I don't think there's been an official meet before this podcast. So Stig, Joe, Joe, Stig, the introduction. Hi, Stig. <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, it's lovely to have you both here. Uh, and as I said, over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your brilliant new novels. Going to get a little insight into your writing processes. We're going to find out what you've been reading and enjoying recently. And we're also going to do, of course, the book off, where each of you gets three minutes uninterrupted to tell us about a book you love and you think we should all read. But we'll get to that soon. Uh, Stig, let's start with you and Death Under a Little Sky and congratulations on the debut. How does it how does it feel now that it's actually out there in the world? It feels kind of awful in a way. Yeah. I mean, I've been sort of living with it for... Um, uh, you don't realise till you write novels how long the process takes. Because um, I wrote the whole thing in one go for myself and for my wife. I used to, I basically sat there and every day sent 2,000 words to my wife and then ended up with a novel. So I had the whole thing done quite a while ago and then it's taken a while to come out. So um, I feel pleased. I feel a bit sick inside when I think about it. Uh, but it's, uh, I love, I do love it. I love what they've done with it. I love the cover. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, ha I'm happy, 
but it's a it's a big difference from sitting with it yourself and then seeing it out and about is it, yeah. it, it, it does make a bit of a difference i'm sure joe will, will have had much more experience with that than me but there's definitely a different <laughs> feeling about it that you you just want people to like it in a sort of slightly pathetic way <laughs> I, think so. I think that's kind of what i've got to with it at the moment does that change joe from the from publishing the debut to publishing uh, you know the seventh eighth ninth does that change oh no, no, I'm sorry, Stig. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is your life now. I mean, this one coming out in May is my twelfth, and I have like severe butterflies. And I'm editing the one for next year, and I th I'm just about to throw that one in the bin. <laughs> I think it's so bad. <laughs> like it never. I mean, you would think, you know, in most things in life with practice, you get better and you get more relaxed. It's not the same with books because I think, like, essentially every time you're putting your heart and soul out there to be judged. And that's not easy, no matter how many times you do it. It's it's yeah, it's horrific. I always said that I'd never I always said that I'd never look at reviews. And I've done two nonfiction books, and obviously the first thing I did was look at the reviews. And in fact, my first ever nonfiction book, the first review, wasn't very nice. And I thought, and it just crushed me in a really again pathetic way. And then the next one was all right and it sort of cheered me up a bit. Uh, the one tip I got from a from a writer, Joe, who'd been published a lot before, I don't know if you agree with this, is that they always say, don't look at your Goodreads reviews, number one. But if you do look at them, pick a book that you think is the greatest book in the history of writing and look at the Goodreads reviews for it. When you see someone give it one star, you know, someone gives Proust one star or not good enough, and then that might shit. So I'm clinging to that as a, as a top tip that someone gave me a, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a good tip um, and, and your eyes will be opened. And it's the same with Amazon, you know, where people give you one star reviews because it didn't arrive for three weeks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Which is exactly your fault, isn't it? Yeah. It's always, yeah. always the author's I fault. I should have that. plotted for that. Yeah. <laughs> but Stig, you're, you're, you're one of the, the busiest people I know. And you said, you know, you wrote this quite a while ago now. Was it that in a flurry? Like, how did you fit this in to your already crazy schedule? It's an interesting, but I mean, I don't know if Joe has experience. I mean, my, my feeling is I actually had about two hours a day in which I could write. And what I did was I just made sure I wrote in them the entire time. So I get up at three in the morning to do the breakfast show, which is awful, as, as you can both imagine. Yes. <laughs> and it's as bad as you might imagine as well. Um, but that meant I had a, a sort of hour in a car driving to work where I used to think quite a lot about it. And then my train home, I would always write. I'd probably try and write for an hour in the afternoon before my kids got back from school. And I just did, and like I said, I was doing this really for pleasure for the first one. I mean, I'm just like Joe, I'm now two ahead actually. I'm just finishing the third one, which won't be out for, for a couple of years. But the routine I started with the first one, I've just kept, I also just love doing it. The pleasure I have putting um, music on on my headphones, even sitting in a train and just writing for 45 minutes and then going home and doing the same thing. I just found that if I did it every day and I just kept going and like I said I was sending it every night to my wife to read uh, in the bath every evening it kind of <laughs> felt there was this sort of routine that I got into and, and that's how I, I think anyone listening who is sort of wants to write and half thinking about writing I don't know how Joe I, I'd love to know how Joe does it but to me a lot of it is just doing it just make sure every day you do it and and by doing that you know 80,000 words if you can do five or 10,000 words a week, 80,000 words is not not that many weeks before you have a big chunk of a, a book done. Joe, I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I mean, when I did my first one, I was similar to you, I was working in um, Leinster House, which is the Irish Parliament. 
and I was I live in the suburbs so I was leaving to go into work at seven in the morning and getting home at seven in the evening two three children at the time we've four now and I was just putting them to bed and then writing for two hours and I had that same thing if I could just do 2,000 words and now, I mean, I, I'm a full-time screenwriter now, and that's a whole other kettle of fish because that's demanding 24 hours a day. Things are constantly changing. Like, we're in our final rap week at the moment, and it's we're outdoor scenes, and it's snowing in Ireland <laughs> in April. <laughs> um, so, you're, you know, you're, I'm juggling all the time, but I'm still in that habit of I write every single day when I'm doing a book or when I'm editing. And when people say that to me as well, like, I really want to write a book, um, but I'm very busy. I'm like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how do you think books get written you know there's no employer maybe in the history unless I don't know you're a teacher and you've got nice summer holidays very few employers are giving you the time off to write your masterpiece most books get written by people on their lunch breaks or on the train in the morning or at night time and if you're lucky enough then you get to be the full-time writer but I, I agree with you completely stick it's, it's do it write it and I think don't get stuck on your start and your middle actually get it down and then go back and edit it from the start and you'll be fine once you write the end you're almost there. Yeah. And also there's a joy in it. I think you've got to find joy in it because um, particularly I wrote two non-fiction books and there's a, there's a lot of heavy lifting with non-fiction, I think. You've got to do so much research and you've got to then com compile the research in a way that enables you to go and write. Whereas I found with this that a lot of it was just the, the being in the joy of the moment of just, just sitting there thinking of stuff. And Honestly, that, that a bit of pleasure that you get from that, you've got to cling to the pleasure of it because otherwise, why are you doing it, really? <laughs> yeah. Why am I here in a, in a cab at three in the morning thinking yeah, about right. these characters? <laughs> I think about that all the time, as you might imagine. <laughs> well, can you introduce us then, Steve, to, to Jake Jackson, please, and set up the story for us? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Jake Jackson is... Um, I mean, I wrote this... This was probably two years ago now, so there's, it was written in lockdown, Although I was working, so I wasn't in lockdown. But the sort of there's no COVID in the book, but there's this sort of hint of some of the issues around COVID, the idea of of, of resignation and proximity and and, and leaving. Because Jake Jackson is a guy who lives in the city, has a very unhappy marriage, not in a in a terrible way, but they both have tragedy together and they both reach the end of the road of their relationship. And he gets a legacy from an uncle who he hasn't seen in a long time, who used to send him crime books when he was a kid, and it made him become a policeman. And he's given him this house called Little Sky, which is in the middle of nowhere in an unidentified location. There's no internet, there's no phone, there is no connectivity whatsoever. So he goes from the sort of bustling city to complete absence. Uh, uh, and it's this giant uh, old farmhouse with a library full of uh, crime books and lots of land and a lake. And he goes from very busy to just this very self-sufficient life. And then... There's a village nearby called Little Sky and the house is called Little Sky. And ultimately, he then gets drawn slightly against his will into a community of people, a relationship with a, with a local vet and then also a crime that has been that he has to kind of uncover. So it's it's a kind of fantasy about escape of getting away from technology and then also um, solving a crime as well. Is the, do you think the rural setting came because you were in lockdown and living in a city or in a town and you thought well I can't I can't set it in a in, in a city or is that not really anything to do with it I think it's probably a bit to do with it. I, I I'm really interested in the idea of of getting away from technology because I'm yeah. I'm ex I often think about this I'm exactly the age in which my childhood had no technology and my adulthood had loads of it so I I got I'm 43 so I got my first email when I was 20 when I was 18 at university and I got my first phone when I was 21 
So my whole childhood was completely technologically technology free, and my whole adulthood has been completely overwhelmed by. It. I've got a fourteen-year-old daughter, my eldest, who lives on her phone, and so the concept of, of phones and being always on and all of that was I'm, I'm really interested in, and the effect it has on our brains. And so some of it was just COVID taught you about proximity and and the idea of getting away from it all. I think that's definitely in the ether when I, I was I was writing it and. I, I, I like the idea of expanse and beauty and, uh, and nature, and, and that was in my mind as well. I think. Yeah. Um, Joe, is it is it true? Lots of your plots come from when you're out running. <laughs> I'm 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 still back. I'm like I'm 43 as well. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I, it's so similar. I'm thinking like I often think about the books that got to be written by the authors before us, where the police were able to solve things without just triangulation of phones. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what, funny you say that, Joe. One of the reasons I actually set this there was to sort of take phones out of the equation. He actually communicates with his with this woman he meets by hanging cloth on a tree, I and mean, every time they see perfect. they see a bit, bit of cloth on a tree, they go and see each other so this way you get word lent because in modern books we can just write them in 10 pages you know i can see the killer he's moving around on cctv yeah yeah, yeah, exactly Exactly. i love it um i mean i do i my my new one don't look back um is kind of the legacy of covid as well because i wrote a couple of books over covid which were all set outside ireland because all of my books up to then have been set in ireland and then i was stuck here for the three years and this one is set on a caribbean island for half the time <laughs> i mean it's easy to tell where my brain was but i do um so i have four children and over covid this was particularly important like i go out running three four times a week and that's my only headspace time other than when i'm actually working and even then when i'm writing there you know, I've, I've got an excellent filter you know i've learned to even doing this podcast, I can hear them. because <laughs> yeah, they're Me too. Great. <laughs> I can hear mine as well. Um, when I go and run, I mean, it's, it's how I've not been knocked down, I don't know, because it keeps me running for longer because I'm not thinking about how tired I am or how out of breath I am. I'm just thinking about the plot that's landed or the character that's landed or the place that's landed. And we don't look back, the island had landed and I really wanted to be there. And I said about creating... <laughs> A murder mystery that would somehow get me onto that island. So it was. They were fantasy ones. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, please just take, get me anywhere. Get me anywhere that's not here. Um, can you introduce us then to, to Luke and to Rose and, and set up their story for us? Yeah, well, it's it's funny when you're talking about standalone characters because um, I'm listening to Steak and I'm thinking, okay. I presume this guy we're going to see in books two and three, you've created yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I have that as well. I've got the detective series. And when I start talking about him, I'm like, I just slip immediately into that. You know, they live with you when they're in a series. But when they're standalone, you kind of create them. You put them on the page and then you put them down. And I'm I'm just finished my new standalone. On my own. So I have to like, I'm travel back to my head when I was doing this but we meet we meet this couple Luke and Rose and I mean it opens with that chapter of they're on a belated honeymoon um, and they're going home and he has noticed as the week has gone on and it was a spontaneous trip that she's got very quiet and very depressed and he thinks this might be a ghost from her past she's got a quite a troubled past and he thinks she's you know she's stalling about going back to London where they live and she actually says to him no we can't go back because there's a body in our apartment and I put it there. Um, so it's like, boom, everything just comes apart. So he, she's got a troubled past and she's got a guy there who is obviously the guy who's come back and he contacts an old friend of his called Mickey who lives in London. 
and she is an Irish woman who used to be a domestic violence solicitor in Ireland but she gave up on the system because you know she represented so many women who were so badly abused and so let down by the courts so she lives in London now living this kind of shady life she's married to quite a wealthy man where she rescues women or helps them escape from the situations they're in and he contacts her and says I've got a bit of an issue um, my new wife Rose might have done something there might be somebody in my apartment but i also need something out of that apartment uh could you go and get it for me and once you're there once you get it for me ring the police report what you see that's all fine so he drags her into this uh awful thing that's happening but you know all of them have secrets all of them have a past and i'm in i'm at that point now of talking where i'm like now what do i say that doesn't give away the plot <laughs> yeah. Can't. Yeah. yeah maybe stop there that's that's wise what a setup that is! I love that. <laughs> and she's someone you definitely want on your side, isn't she, Joe? She's um, yeah. We've just I've done because obviously I do so much screenwriting now, where I've just done the deal to uh, things that I say that I, I can yeah. <laughs> I can say what I'm saying who it's with. I've just done the deal to bring it to screen. Um, and what sold it to them was these characters, Mickey and her sidekick, Elliot, because they are recurring characters or can be. I mean, not in books, but they can be on screen. And they were like, you know, we, we like the mystery. We like Luke and Rose. This is all fantastic. But this woman, we've not seen her before. And that's the big thing with TV. You know, what have, what have we not seen before? So, yeah. Mm. And you are a TV nut. You love watching TV. And I wondered if that came because of the screenwriting or was that always you from an early age and that actually informed you becoming a screenwriter as well as an author um no money informed me becoming a screenwriter (laughs) (laughs) i just to be honest that's the best reason it's the best reason (laughs) yeah i mean i i love i i writing was my first love and i always wanted to write novels but i grew up in very working class area i mean i went to trinity college in dublin and you know, I, I did a proper degree and everything, but I just didn't think that writing was a career. Who thinks, it's not, you don't think it's a career, you know, especially not when you grow up, you know, in a kind of a council estate. And so when I got writing novels, I was like, this is it, my dream has come true. Um, and then quickly realized to become a full-time writer, it, it, it's not easy to make money as an author unless you are one of the big, you know, Stieg Larsson or John Grisham, or you get to that level of, of writing books. And, um, the drama commissioner in the Irish station RTE really liked my books and said, do you have an original in you for TV? And I said, yes. And I downloaded final draft. I read a few screenplays online and sent them in an original TV show. Didn't tell them I'd never written for screen before and they commissioned it. Amazing. And how hard was that? How hard, I mean, I mean, it was obviously brilliant. And so they, they was it difficult to do having done, having done the novels, did that help, do you think? Um, no, it's like, uh, I often say to people, it's like being a biathlete, you know, you can cycle and you can swim, but doing one might give you the stamina for the other, but doesn't mean you've got the skill for the other. And telling a story visually and telling a story in novels are completely different. But I mean, whatever about the storytelling, you know, because if you're very dialogue heavy in your novels, you can transport that. TV eats story. So very few books can go mm. on screen the way TV goes on screen. Like you've got so many more beats, but you're also the hardest thing about it um, and I, I mitigate this with how much they pay you for screen, <laughs> which is much, much more than you get for books. Um, it's the team effort. It's a collaborative effort. So, you know, you, you write your novel Stig and you send it to your agent and then your editor. And, you know, you've got a few friends reading it and eventually you get it there. But it's you. It's always yeah. you. Yeah. Scripts are 
producers and directors and network commissioners and the cameraman and the budget man locations and then the actors and then the editor and then so on so on so on and it's yeah it's often where story goes to die <laughs> are you um at all tempted to stay in the screenwriting world or is that not for you uh i, I deeply admire it i mean i i think that i've got to try and and i i've got another job um, which is yeah. a, the breakfast yeah. uh, show presenter. And I think I've only got so many things that I, I can do before I fall <laughs> over. And um, also, I'm not sure I'd be any good at it. I, I kind of enjoy my book, I think is probably more descript. And I'm, I'm conscious that this doesn't necessarily sell it. It's probably got more description in it um, than being sort of very dialogue heavy. Uh, and so I wonder whether I wouldn't be any good at a screenplay, actually. I mean, I, I kind of think that the book series that I'm writing has this very distinctive location. It's got quite to a particular in the second and third, the characters start to expand a little bit. I can see someone making it into a TV mm. programme. Not, I'm sure they won't, but the, the idea, I can see parts of it working in that area, but I don't necessarily feel that, that I have the, the ability like Joe to just, just turn it on like that. I, I remember talking to you a while back, um, we sort of shared a, a bit of a love of, of Raymond Chandler. Um, and I... I, this was this was sort of way way back. This was quite a few years ago, perhaps even before you'd put pen to paper, fingers to keys, for this novel. But was was it inevitable that the novel that you would write first was going to be in this genre as opposed to being I don't know like a fantasy or comedy or something? I mean, I love crime novels so much, and uh, I've li- read that read them all my life, and. Um, you know, I grew up in a house which had some book, you know, this is sort of Joe and I being exactly the same age. There's no Amazon. There was the number of books that were in my house and my parents had quite a few books, but not tons. I mean, you know, yeah. and they had a lot of thrillers, a lot of, you know, I grew up in, you know, born in 1980. There are a lot of 70s thrillers, lots of genre fiction. So I fell in love with genre fiction from the very beginning. And then I've always read crime novels. Uh, I've actually sort of used them as a sort of prop for my life in lots of respects. So I can't think why I wouldn't write crime novels because I, I love them so much. And you, you mentioned the great thing about crime novels, it strikes me, is that it's such a generously large genre that, you know, it's only been going on for 120 odd years, 130 odd years, but it splits all over the place. You have, you know, you can sense it anywhere. You know, when it was split American English, you have the, the, the brilliant women of Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and people like that. And then you have the tough men in America of, of Chandler and Hammett and everything in between. And so I think that because it's, I love genre writing. I love good genre writing because there's a lot of bad stuff which I can't read. But when it's good, I think it's just the greatest thing in the world. And I also think when you discover a series, Mm. it's the greatest pleasure in the world, particularly if you discover a series five or six or 10 or 12 books in. And then you go back to it and you think, God, I've got 10 books I can just go and and read. (laughs) So I kind of think I've, I've loved this genre so much for so long that that why wouldn't I I mean I never thought when I was reading it when I was a kid I would write write it and even no. 10 years ago I didn't think I would do it but I think if I was going to pick a genre this would be this was always going to be the one yeah Linwood Barclay was uh, on the podcast uh, a few episodes back and introduced me to for my shame I had never heard of him Ross MacDonald yeah and I have since just gone on a Ross MacDonald binge a bit like you're saying Steve you know you do discover, discover an author or a series and suddenly you have their whole that catalogue to enjoy, and it really is a marvellous journey. I love Ross MacDonald. He's not even the best American hard-boiled novelist called MacDonald. you joking. Who's no, the other one? There's a guy called John D. MacDonald who um, wrote Cape Fear. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, right. 
but he also wrote this amazing series of novels, the Travis McGee novels, which he wrote in the 60s and 70s. And they're set in Florida and it's about a beach bum who uh, is taking his retirement in chunks while he can still enjoy it. And he gets, he, his, his MO is that people lose something, he retrieves it for them and then gets paid half the value for it. And he lives on a boat in Florida and there's 21 books. Each one has a different colour in the title. Oh, wow. Uh, and Ross MacDonald is slightly more literary in people, but John D. MacDonald, I would heartily, heartily recommend. If you're, if you're, on, a McDonald, if you're on a McDonald <laughs> binge, then, then that's, that's what I would suggest. I'm going to go on to, the ne- to this new McDonald now. Yeah. Thanks, Dick. <laughs> is, that, is, is, is that got anything uh, for you, Joe? A bit of hard-boiled American crime? Um, is that your bag? No. And I think this is a man-woman thing. Right, <laughs> not, yeah. not, not to like sweep every single member of my sex with the same brush, but um, I do find like all of my male friends, like they tend to read the the hard-boiled American detectives, whereas I have always been much more, you know, starting with Agatha Christie's when I was younger, but then now I tend to look at all of the a lot of the European writers. Um, so I went immediately to the likes of. Fred Vargas and Pierre Lumet and Karen Fossum and then I found mm. Louise Penny in Canada and they're much more kind of mystery you know like it's it's yeah exactly Louise Penny is one of my favorites absolutely I love Louise Penny yeah. I just got into it now because in fact so, someone read my 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 book and said oh you should read Louise Penny because uh it's set in this set in a, it's a Canadian Quebec village isn't it and my yeah. book's set in a village and they, oh you should read the inspector uh, <laughs> Gamash, so I, I did. They're, yeah. they're absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and, she, and you know when you fall in love with a detective and you just want yeah. to steal them, you know, and I'm the same with Fred Vargas. She does Adamsberg and he's absolutely brilliant. But I mean, I, yeah, I, I I think a lot of the hardball detective stuff, I tend to watch it more as movies. You know, if it's like a Jack Reacher or something like that, then read the books. And when it's visual and it's all action, like I can give the 90 minutes for that. But yeah. books, yeah. There's a divide in my bookshelf. <laughs> um, well, as we're sort of talking about authors we like, I always love to ask my guests what they've been reading recently and enjoying, just in case there's an author or two that we should be aware of. Um, I know that you're a voracious reader, Stig. Um, obviously, you've you've just showed us that book, but is there anything else recently that you've read and enjoyed that we should be looking out for? i tell you a series I do like, um, a woman called Nicola Upson. I don't know if any of okay. you've heard of her. Uh, and what's so, interesting no. about her is she writes uh, novels set in the 1930s. I do like stuff set in the 20s and 30s. Again, getting away from the, the modern world I quite like. And, and, and but she um, sets these novels in the 30s and her, her, there's a detective who's in the police force. But there's also a, um, the other main character is Josephine Tay, who is a novelist herself from the golden age of fiction. <laughs> So the central character is Josephine. And if you've ever read Josephine Tay, they are brilliant books. She wrote like seven detective novels in the 30s. But she also wrote one amazing one called The Daughter of Time, where her policeman breaks his leg and he sits in hospital and he decides to solve the mystery of who killed the princes in the tower in, uh, in, the, 15, in the 1400s. <laughs> And so it's a really, really good book um, by Josephine Tay. But anyway, Nicola Upson writes these 20s and 30s mystery set um i've read um i've read several of those recently i do love uh, louise penny i also quite like now and i didn't like him at the beginning i've just read quite a lot of rex stout who wrote the nero wolf mysteries again okay. this is uh, he wrote them in the sort of 30s 40s 50s and 60s and 
Um, he's this very fat. He's kind of like an answer to Sherlock Holmes. America's answer to Sherlock Holmes. He has a psychic called Archie Goodwin. He's very fat. He never leaves his building, and he solves mysteries. And he loves orchids. And he's um, he churned them out. I mean, he wrote like sixty-two of them, I think. Oh my um, god! But they're pretty good. I, I quite I, they're, they're they're not hardball at all. They're 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 they're, they're sort of New York in the nineteen thirties and forties, if you like that sort of thing. Uh, they're quite stylish. The, the side, the sidekick, who's the narrator, Archie Goodwin, is is is, is a really interesting figure. So I've, I've just been reading some of them as well. Now that's a good series to discover if you've got sixty-two of them to yeah. enjoy. Bloody hell! Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Stig. Uh, and what about you, Joe? What have you been reading and enjoying recently? Uh, so I have this thing now where I so, so you're gonna. I presume you'll get this as well, Stig. I get sent so many books from new authors or new books from authors who are already out there to blurb. To, to read and to put comments on the back um, and we moved house last year and we thought we'd told nearly everybody what the address was um, but several publishers the people who moved in turned up at our house with a box <laughs> <laughs> do you have a book problem <laughs> I was like actually no I get them all for free and then they were like oh, well, can we keep them <laughs> um, so I really struggled to stay on top of the, the pile of books that comes in and it means I tend to stack all my favourite authors for my summer holidays. So when I go on holidays, like I, I, I had to give in eventually to Kindles because I used to bring about like 10 books because I'm yeah. a fast reader in a mm-hmm. suitcase, 10 hardback, you know, proper. Yeah. And then I was like, Kindle, I can get like 15 on and just put it in my handbag. So that's, I've gone that way now. But I mean, the last book I read that I didn't just take from kind of a new author or whatever, that I actually physically sought out was, um, there's an Irish author called Liz Nugent. And she's just someone called Strange Sally Diamond. And it's she writes these really quirky, unusual books. And this one is, I think the, the quote I gave in was, it's like, it's it's room meets Eleanor Oliphant. It has oh, really? that kind of like mix of like, there's something horrific has happened in the past that has left this, left this woman with kind of a PTSD kind of trauma. Um, and her only way of dealing with life is to approach it quite simply. And she opens the book with... Um, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, you know, I didn't see there was any problem with him putting my father in the trash when he died because he always said when he was dead to put him out with the trash. <laughs> so she actually does. <laughs> she takes things by literally, you know. And then we just explore what has happened to her in the past and it takes us all over the world. Um, but I like when I go into this universe that I can't think of. And that's the issue for me now with books. It's a busman's holiday. So if I start reading a book and I'm already at the end of it in my mind... And because I really, I guess, sent the same amount of books now by producers to talk to me about adapting. So every book I read, I'm deconstructing and I don't want to do it. But it's like if you work in the sausage factory, <laughs> you start doing it, you know. So anytime I pick up a book that I couldn't write, that I can't see the ending of, that I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost to that book now. So that was the last one that did that for me. Um, and I'm hoping I've got about 15 of them on my Kindle for July. <laughs> Joe, jo, can I ask you about, about blurb? I'm really interested in the pol- politics of blurbing because I'm very new to, to, to this. And uh, my publishers, I got quite a lot of blurbs and my publishers sent them out. Do you mind being asked? I don't know. What's the, what's the etiquette of this? If someone sends you a book and says, would you mind blurbing this? Can you say no? Um, what's the what's the what's the, what's the etiquette around it in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, authors keep their murderous toss to the page, and we're quite polite folk in real life. So you never, because you you do the same. You know, no matter how many books you are in, like Val McDermott still needs quotes from other authors on her books. You know, I don't. I mean, I 
before I was an author, before I knew about this world of authors blurbing other authors' books, when I used to go into the bookshop, I would be looking to see what the Financial Times and the Guardian and the Irish Times yeah. said about the book. I would be looking for those reviews. And the author thing was new to me. So unless it's an author like a, who was really famous, like Val McDermott or John Grisham or something, their, their endorsement of the book meant nothing to me. And I sometimes think when publishers send me books and they want to quote, I'm like, what do I matter? Like, who's going to buy a book on the basis of it? Unless it's somebody who's read me and likes me, why would anybody buy a book? Because I recommended it. And I think sometimes it's promoting it in social media and just getting the word of the book out yeah. there. So, I mean, I can't, I can't stay on top of all the books that I get sent. And I tend to, particularly if it comes from the author, I say, look, I see it there. I apologize. I can't get to it. Um, and it's nothing to do with the book. And I say the book is brilliant. And I think the more you go on in the career, the more you realize you can't read every book that comes in. And it's not a slight and you do what you can and everybody gets that you know but i genuinely think that you know i don't know maybe my name means something to 10 people who might see that book but there'd be thousands who are just like joe who <laughs> <laughs> but people who love you would i mean you know if they really love you and you say this book's good then maybe yeah. that will make it i'm sure that will, will make it and also i one of the other issues these days is how often do your books get reviewed because if you're working in genre fiction there aren't that many i'm very struck how you know, literary fiction gets reviewed and non-fiction gets reviewed, but genre writing is often in roundups and stuff like that. So actually, how often can 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 you get reviews in if you're working in, in genre fiction? Yeah, well, it's it's great if you live in Ireland because there's, there's only so many of us. And I every single year I get Irish Times, Irish Independent, Hot Press. You know, I'd, I'd get all of the reviews here. Um, but I think it is one of those things when you're a debut author, you tend to get reviews because they're giving you a go. And if they really like you, they might come back. If you stick around. So I read somewhere recently, it's, it's the tiniest percentage of authors go to double digit books. The vast majority of authors stop before 10. And a lot of that is earnings. Really? Because yeah. if you can't make it work for you full time, like, you know, you can imagine Stig now doing this for the next 10 years of your life where you were doing the double jobbing, you know, getting up and doing the morning show and all the other things that come your way and then writing books in the evening. Eventually, it wears people out if they can't make it a financial viable option to do, you know, even if they're doing their other job part time. So most authors leave. And if you have longevity, I find now I get reviewed nearly every year in The Guardian or The Financial Times or whatever, because it's like, there's another one, there's another one, there's yeah, another one. Your name is just ever present. But yeah, it's 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 tough. Literary, and, and it's true in Ireland as well, literary books are still royalty, even though the crime genre is keeping our bookshops afloat. Yeah, yeah. And also the great, you know, the greatest books I think are brilliant, brilliant genre books to me are, are the are the peak. That's the peak of the reading experience to me. I, you know, you, you can, uh, you don't have what even is literary fiction is a sort of pointless debate to have. But I do think that a well written genre book is 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 achieving something that that is that is really 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 important. And, and have you been asked yet, Stig, to blurb? Is that is that why you had that question? Or yeah, I'm just interested because I. For it? No, I have, and I have, and also I have asked people, and then I thought, am I being awful asking, and I don't want to be that person, that, that sort of desperate, needy person, and then <laughs> if they say no, how, how should I take it? And, um, and actually, the best thing I've had is I, I've had a couple from people who I just love reading, and then that makes it, so Joe, that makes a difference, I think, that you don't want to underplay, you know, people love you, and then if you just say you like it, the way people feel about, I mean, my book has Lee Child and Lucy Foley on the front, who are two relatively, I mean, Lee's child is, is massive. Lucy Foley's really successful now. And I just really like their books. And so yeah. I don't know whether that actually help anything, 
but it made me feel good and I kind of felt for <laughs> maybe my book's all right actually because I, I don't know if you still feel doubt but be, I'm the, sort of, you feel racked by doubt don't you a lot of the time in all of this and just someone saying you know what I quite like that that's that, that does something for the author if not for anybody yeah. else but you know it's like you were saying that earlier on about reviews I think one of the the wisest thing I can say to anybody now um is that you learn very quickly that your books can't please all the people all the time. And I have had people who now give reviews and I don't, I mean, I don't consciously go looking for them. I think at the start when a book is coming out, I tend to check the early type feedback from NetGalley or Goodreads. And then I just lose track of it. Cause you know, you've moved on, you're onto other mm. books or other projects. Um, and I see some people saying, you know, I want her detective Tom Reynolds series back. I don't like these standalones. Yeah. And then I see people saying, Perfect Lies is the best book I've, I've ever read in my whole life. And then I went out and bought our detective series and that's really dull. <laughs> so once you realize that, you know, we're all the same. I mean, the book that I read, you might read that hard-boiled American detective and be like, five-star, best book I've ever read. And I'd read four pages of it and go, what a stupid thing. That's One star. You know, <laughs> I, that's, that gives me a little bit of zen. You know, like some people yeah. are gonna just think it's the best book they've ever read. Other people are gonna go, and I don't care as long as they bought it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the spirit. I, I, I do also think that the, the the community is very welcoming. I do think that people, that people who love crime fiction, kind of want to be nice. I do find that more so. I mean, I, I work in news. News is awful. I mean, news social media is awful. The world of news is awful. Comments below the line are awful. Everything about it is kind of vicious and mean. I mean, it really, I mean, and for people who don't straddle two worlds like I do, who work in the arts world, I, mean, I used to present front row and the lovely people on front row on Radio 4 and they'd be like, oh, it's, it's a bit stressful this and what will people think? It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> work in news for a, for, for a couple of weeks, people will hate you and they'll hate everything that's ever happened and they're angry and mean. And actually I do kind of want to believe and do believe that people who love books effectively are already decent people by virtue of loving books. And I just think that's the thing, the thing to, I can always cling on to. I think books, books could solve world peace. I, I worked in <laughs> politics, so I'm exactly the same background um, and, and it was vicious and awful. And I was working for an opposition spokesperson on finance and the, the minister for finance and polar opposites of politics, right and left. And um, when I brought out my first book, um, this guy, my, my, my MP, my TD, he read it and he loved it. And he was like, you're going to be leaving soon, aren't you? You know, he, he's so obsessed with crime books and it actually united us because we used to fight like cats and dogs, but he was obsessed <laughs> with crime books. But he, he literally walked across the chamber as such. And he, he said to me afterwards, he knew that this other guy loved crime books. And they both started talking about my, my books and all the crime books they loved. Yeah. And I remember when the Minister for Finance was doing his budget announcement speech, they do photographs beforehand in Ireland where they, you know, they go out with their uh, little briefcase. Like they, yeah, do they do it, hey, yeah. But they do it in their office. And on the table behind him, there was Joe Spains. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Love See, that. Yeah. Can you fix oh, Brexit? That's a different. That's a, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a debate for another day. That's a whole other podcast episode. Yeah. I think the book, the, the books to fix Brexit. We'll come back to that. Later. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, but it is now time for the book off, where each of you gets three minutes uninterrupted if you want to use them to tell us about a book you love, you think that we should all read. This can be any book. We always say it doesn't have to be your favourite book because I don't really believe in that. It's just a book that you've loved, that you want to give to everyone. You think everyone should read it. It can be in any genre. It can be anything you like. We'll find out what they are very shortly. But first, a little bit of admin. We always say the person who's travelled the furthest gets to go choose whether they go first or second. That is you, Joe Spain, all the way from Ireland. So would you like to go virtually, of course, would you like to go first or second? I'm going to go first to get it over with. Well done, okay, understood. I haven't decided uh, which one I'm going to do yet, so I'm also going to be, I'm going to be listening. I also need to, also need to try and work out. He's, he's got a one, one ear on seeing yeah, which what one you're am doing. I, going to go for. I kind of feel the challenge has been set by Joe because she, she doesn't like hard boiled fiction, so maybe I need to maybe I need to try and give a give a hard boiled one a go. Just to try oh, and that's a good idea, actually. Um, and as I said, you've got three minutes. If you're still talking at the three minute mark, you'll either be rung out by the school bell or. Honked out by the horn. Stig, which would you prefer? I always two? prefer to be honked. You always prefer to be honked, therefore <laughs> you will get a good old honking and uh, it's the bell for you, Joe. Uh, so it's uh, three minutes on the clock and it's uninterrupted if you want to use them. And um, Before we set the timer going, just tell us, Joe, which book you're putting forward, please. Okay, I chose this book a few weeks ago and it is Pride and Prejudice. Oh, um, it's, I, I went it's looking, things already sold. Yeah, done. I, well done, Joe. Okay, because I thought I was going to have to sell this book. No, you do. You do. Um, all right, it's three minutes then. Over to you to tell us uh, about Pride and Prejudice. Okay. The reason I chose Pride and Prejudice, um, and I should have had a copy here to, to show, even though we're just vocally at the moment, um, and I can't show it because my daughter's actually doing it in school at the moment, and she's using my copy, which I got when I was 14, when I first did it in school. So it's very well tummed. It's got stuff on the margins. It has um, Joanne Loves Garrett, who apparently I loved at the time. <laughs> can't even remember who he was. Um, and my friend Catherine saying, are you going to kiss Garrett somewhere else? <laughs> this book is, is just full of things. Um, and it brings me back to that place. But it's not just a nostalgia. It's not just a memory. Pride and Prejudice was the first book that I read, which is a classic. So I know it's not crime. I know it's not genre. But to me, as we were saying earlier on, classic is what draws you in, shows you something different about the world, writes in a way that is so appealing that you would read and reread and reread that book. 
And I think I've read Pride and Prejudice now about 50 times and I watched the BBC adaptation about 50 times. Sometimes during COVID or on a wet Sunday if I'm baking, I literally put it on. When it was on Netflix, I would have it on in the background six hours or if I'm really hungover, six hours of that. Um, and the same for the book then, if I'm traveling somewhere and I can only bring one book, that's the one I bring. And the reason I love it so much is so I thought I was going to have to sell this to the two men. <laughs> I feel like I don't, <laughs> which is excellent. It's essentially a love story, but it's not a love story. It is a character story. And there's so many different ways you can read it because she was such a brilliant author and so ahead of her time that on the one hand, you can come in and look at these characters like Eliza Bennett, and she's a feminist icon. But you can look at it another way and actually she hates women <laughs> and she really lets her father who is really awful to her mother away with murder because she's his pet you know you can look at the mother and say she is a silly waste of a woman or you can look at her and say she has five daughters and no son and if the husband dies and he's been on whatever it was was it three grand a year two grand a year of an income hasn't managed to save nothing his whole life and now his five daughters are facing poverty and she said her business to get these daughters married and he's dismissive of this and he thinks it's nonsense but it's all politics and it's all plot driven because it's it's the quest you know will they get married will they not get married the class thing creeps in because she's essentially working class even though they've got servants but then when darcy who is a manic depressive <laughs> comes along um he's he's the answer and along with bingley and the characters in it every single one of them can twist on a pin and I think that's brilliant writing because anybody can read that book and come at it with a different perspective. They're witty, which is something else. I mean, I, sometimes I read a book and I'm like, this is well written. There's interesting characters, but nobody is that dry in real life. Or if they are, I don't want them in my world. Everybody in Pride and Prejudice is funny. Even the mother, she's funny. Whoa, lovely. Phil three minutes. <laughs> I know you got you had so much more to say I could tell Joe but that was a fabulous pitch uh, and we'll come back and talk about it in a bit you can have a have a breather now have a sip of can water Can we just relax. can we just accept I'm happy to, I'm happy to concede <laughs> pride and prejudice I love pride and got prejudice Got to play the game Stig oh, you got to play I the concede, game I concede I can all right all right <laughs> um, can I pick pride and prejudice and just give <laughs> Can I pick Pride and Prejudice and we just both, I, I give my three minutes on why I love Pride and Prejudice? You can, if that's your, if that's your, uh, if that's your chosen one, then why not? Let's do it. I love Pride and Prejudice. This is an absolute first. Yay. Never before Winners. have the same book being put up against itself. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, three minutes then um, all right. to find out what you love, Stig about Pride and Prejudice. Over Can I start? You. Okay. I was going to choose, by the way, American Tabloid by James Elroy, which I just think is a great, great crime novel. And so people can go and read that uh, if they like that sort of thing. So Pride and Prejudice. I love what Joe was saying about uh, Mrs. Bennett. Um, and Martin Amis once said that the genius of, of Pride and Prejudice was that it makes Mrs. Bennett's of all of us. Because at one level, we, we're criticised Mrs. Bennett for being this shallow uh, woman obsessed with marriage. And yet the entire driving force of the novel is us desperate for all of the daughters to get married brilliantly well. And uh, it is such a funny novel. It's such a clever novel. Um, and this central love affair at its heart is also quite cynically and sceptically revealed. There's a bit where um, uh, Elizabeth Bennet says, he says, Darcy, at the end, when, when they've got together, he says, when did you first fall in love with me? 
and she says, oh, when I saw your big house. And at one level, that is deeply true. It's a joke. She's making a joke, obviously. But it is also partially true because one of the things you have to do in when you're living in the circumstances that these girls are living in is find someone who can look after you, who can pay, pay your way. You know, one of the reasons why Jane loves Bingley is how rich she is. One of the reasons why Mrs. Bennett is so obsessed with Bingley is because of how rich she is. And that's just good sense. It's common sense. It's not um, awfully mercenary. It's just how you live your life. And I think what's clever about Jane Austen and this novel is that she recognises that and, and she, she's completely wide-eyed about it. And you're, I think you're so right to say the dad at one level is very funny and that he's annoyed by his wife, but he chose to marry her. He married this woman and he has infantilised this woman and he has made this woman who she is. And now he half winks at his two clever daughters in a way that's really unattractive, where he basically says, she's a bit dumb, isn't she, to the two really clever ones. Uh, and I think that's brilliantly absurd because you can just imagine a man doing that. Um, and so taken together, you have this sort of mercenary view, you have this romantic view, and then you have the central love story at its heart, uh, which you can see coming. There's a bit in uh, one of Jane Austen's other novels where she talks about the telltale felicity of the pages being compressed. When you read a novel and you can see you're coming to the end of it, one of the great pleasures is to know that there's a happy ending coming. And you can see this happy ending from about page 13, and you know it's going to get there, and yet you're still deeply, deeply excited when it happens. When and then his awful aunt Catherine de Bourg comes on and she tells her to stick it. And all of these bits that you could see coming a mile away actually happen. And this man, as you say, is a problematic depressive. And you don't quite know how happy their lives are going to be because they're still, it's still very open-ended. You know, this is a comedy, so it ends in a marriage. But the sequel to Pride and Prejudice would be a fascinating book in itself to see what happens with, with uh, Jane and Bingley, with um, uh, Elizabeth uh, and Darcy. But the joy you feel when they get together is, is remarkable. Oh, my goodness. Well done. Fantastic. Two um, fabulous pictures about the same book, which we've never, <laughs> ever, ever, ever done before. So we'll declare it now. Pride and Prejudice is the winner. Um, <laughs> I, um, I love this book. Who doesn't is, is my question. But what's interesting hearing you talk both talk about it is I think I've only I think I've only read it once uh, Joe and I love the idea that there's this copy of the book that you've got all those lovely little notes in from your own childhood and then your daughter's now studying and and has that same copy that is um, you know we talked about taking a Kindle on holiday earlier it has to be done sometimes but that for me epitomizes why having books and old copies and things is just so wonderful because that's such a lovely piece of history now as well as being a classic novel um and you're absolutely right like the the the, the brilliant of brilliance of the writing and characterization is what is so great about this book it's it's an amazing story but actually all of the characters you used a great phrase actually joe you said all of the characters can twist on a pin i love that never heard that before um who was it stig that said the genius of pride and prejudice makes mrs bennett's of us all did you think martin amos he wrote a bit he, yeah and it's totally true and it's so it, once, true, you, once you read that once you kind of think that's exactly what's happened to me here yeah yeah, yeah. 
And yeah. do you know what it does as well? And I think this is like, had I had 25 minutes to talk. <laughs> when you said three minutes, I was like, oh God, can I fill three minutes? <laughs> and then I started talking, I was like, I haven't even gone on to Lydia yet. Really? Yeah. Before yeah. marriage. <laughs> She's the real hero. <laughs> but um, I was like, it opened my eyes to Penguin Classics. That, that was yeah. a, that's right. a huge gift to anybody. Because sometimes I look at books that are deemed modern day classics and I just think, are they are they or is that some kind of group of elitist people in a room somewhere saying this is an amazing book and we should all read it and i wonder how many of them will be reread in 200 years because at the time jane austen's book was a romance written by a chick you know and now we all recognize it for the classic that it is and i think this comes back to the kind of crime v literary thing i'm positive there are crime books out there that are going to be classics in years to come but then there are some books that maybe win the booker prize that i don't know they will ever be in anybody's hands and the thing about penguin classics i think it's the this their success is their brilliance nobody told us they were brilliant they are brilliant because they are the books that people come back to time and time again and when i read pride and prejudice i read all the rest of jane austen some of them i liked more than others i read all the brontes obsessed Mm. with heights i got wilkie collins moonstone you know yeah yeah penguin classics and and once you've got your head around one kind of book in that kind of language you can read any book in that kind of language you know it opens up a world for you and also i think that because we're the same age joe there weren't that many books around but those i think pride and prejudice you could buy for a quid or two quid in that in that version that very simple version and so actually we didn't have lots of money and we didn't have that many books but you could buy pride and prejudice for a quid and therefore, yeah. you just have this. And I've still got the book I bought when I was 14 for a quid. And I still read. That's the one, I, that's the one that I read. For. I, I, I didn't write about my fantasies of kissing people. Uh, I'm afraid. Did you ever kiss him? Did you kiss him? I'm, I'm fairly certain I didn't. I had to think about oh. it. I gave Isabel. I think I just was madly in love with him. And we were going to get married and have kids. Um, and no. no. <laughs> I, was, I, I did said- not get that's the ending. <laughs> no. And you know what? My, my book, um, you, you'll, you'll, you'll have got this, Joe, if you, if you, if you ever read it, is um, the central, the, the, the love interest for me is a woman uh, called Livia. And I, I've given her the surname Bennett. And the village that is near where Little Sky is, is called Meryton. Oh, my. In, in, in tribute. And there is a lake. And there is a joke, which is not stated, but it's just there for you, Joe. And uh, anyone who's seen the thing, there is a people diving in the lake love moment, which is, of course is not in the book. The, the Darcy in the lake uh, BBC thing is not in the book. It's, uh, it's just the, t- the success <laughs> of the TV adaptation, Joe, going back to what you do as well. Um, it's not there in the book, but there, is there in my book as a little joke about it. So there's Meryton, there's yeah. Livia Bennett, and there is a lake scene, which is my tribute to Pride and Prejudice. Well, I had, I had the honour of writing on Sanditon for ITV last year, which was the unfinished Jane Austen novel. Yeah. Davies had adapted the fourth series, and I, I'm on series three. And I remember watching that fourth series, and I was like, Andrew Davies just likes putting men in water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a genius. <laughs> oh, I love that. And hearing you both talk about it has made me want to go and reread it. Yeah. almost instantly so that is amazing and anyone listening who has probably you know might not have read it i doubt but 
or has read it a long time ago, like me, might want to go and pick it up as well. So thank you both for those fabulous pictures and for reminding us about the brilliance of, of Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and thank you both for your brilliant books as well. Death Under a Little Sky by Stig Abel. It's out now. It's published by HarperCollins. And Don't Look Back by Joe Spain. Also out now, published by Quercus. Um, what a pleasure. We could talk for another hour about... Pride and Prejudice alone, but yeah. we must call it a day. Um, and it's been a pleasure having you both on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.